All right, how's everybody doing today? This is Drew, and this is the Owl Once Was Lost podcast. And we are finally at episode two. And what we're going to be dealing with today is the official version of Jeffrey's case as put down by the Douglas County Sheriff's deputies and the investigative division of detective summary reports assigned to Jeff's case so that everybody can hear um, what led to their decision to close the case uh, with absolutely no foul play involved even though we do start with the detective stating that there was quite a bit of suspicion involved in this case. So I'm just going to be objective here, go through the information, and you guys should be taking notes. Uh, the next episode is really going to open up things for you, which is a recorded interview with some people that were in from out of town that are completely objective, very intelligent, very smart, and noticed quite a bit. Um, <laughs> really so much more than uh, even the detectives did. But of course, the family caught uh, all of this and I did an interview with them. But anyway, so we are going to uh, start here. Uh, with, again, the Ballad of Jeffrey Vance. Um, ballads, as mentioned, are for cowboys, larger-than-life characters like Paul Bunyan, and also anyone that we want to celebrate, as I've described Jeffrey Vance, the cowboy. Just the feeling I get when I see the pictures of him or hear stories about him, but ballads are also filled with the lore and non-truths and everything else in between. And it is that in between where the facts lie. But today is for the authorities that originally said this case was, again, very suspicious to say the least, yet in a very short time became just another closed case. Ballads can end in just about any way. And this one unfortunately turned from the story of a young man for you lovers of a good larger-than-life description, but also uncannily true about Jeff, who was just trying to make it in this world, which turned into a nightmare for a very loving family who are only searching for the truth. So we have to unfortunately now leave the ballad behind and venture into the in-between, as I mentioned, of what sometimes authority calls truth, because it's right there on the report. And those looking from the outside or those that got caught up in the case without even knowing anyone involved, but also found it immediately suspicious. And myself, personally, as of right now, I just find bizarre. That's the only word that I can come up with at the moment. So... Right as of now, you know, Jeffrey's dealing with an estranged wife in tow, 
a group of people in an area of the country he was not raised in, though he did love that being Mount Angel, Oregon. We find Jeff spending some of his time between this small town and his home back in Kansas. Jeff had already been having very personal conversations with his mother, his siblings, and his best friend, if you remember, Kayla, from the previous episode, celebrating Jeffrey's life, about the element he found himself in there, that of the underbelly of this small, unassuming little town, but one that fits the boxes all checked as a community ravaged by meth. It had its small-town dealers who, in turn, would be dealing with much bigger people or cutting that all out of the picture and just making it themselves in the so-called cheap way, which is not only an inferior product, but much more dangerous to make since we are not talking about lab conditions here. So most people making product being high as well most of the time themselves, I'm sure you hear of these makeshift labs actually even exploding and people dying, you know, all the time. Anyone old enough to remember Scarface knows that you don't get high on your own supply. That's rule number one in becoming a want-to-be kingpin. Trust me, I know the type, having gone to college for a short time in Valdosta State University, which is in southern Georgia, and at being the official stopover for all drugs moving from South Florida up the corridor to New York and Montreal, Canada. So I not only saw these wannabe drug kingpins, you can imagine this little city, and its only thing of note is the college and the Air Force base there, and it being the perfect place for the amount of cocaine and MDMA who no one even really knew what that was being the 80s. LSD, pot, I mean, you name it. Uh, I I remember the day meth even came to town to Valdosta and somebody coming up and telling me about this and nobody really knowing what that was. Of course, people understand and knew what amphetamines were and even what was used to be called methamphetamines, but not not the real deal. So anyways, the the point of all this is just to explain that small towns are actually where the real action occurs in the distribution of drugs and where meetings and easy to pay off and bribe local authorities who made barely over minimum wage was a no-brainer. This is in no way saying all small towns are like this, nor are we saying that Mount Angel or the larger Roseburg is. For the most part, let's say 99% of law enforcement are fighting for justice and are there to, quote, you know, serve and protect. But we all know in any endeavor, there are bad apples. Even the police will tell you this, and that's why they have the Internal Affairs Division. We are also in no way saying that this occurred in this case as of now, as of this episode and its purpose. We know of some incredible detectives and other law enforcement officers that work this case and the search and rescue teams who really have the tough work to do and they tried very hard to find Jeff and we thank them from the bottom of our hearts. We really do. We, we only need to 
mention all of that due to some very strange occurrences. And again, the elephant in the room, that being drugs and the rampant availability of it, and the circle of people that Jeff had around him at the time, um, using and even making some of these drugs. It's, it's all in the report. So we're not pointing any fingers here. Hell, even Jeff was using a bit and you know, he wasn't perfect. His mother would tell you so herself. How honest this family is. They just want the truth. He wanted to move away from all this, though. He had his sights set on domestic issues and either working things out or leaving. I only wish that he had not been, again, the hero of this tale, because we all know heroes want to help people and save them. And the rest of us know where that usually leads in any relationship. You know, people do that. So, and it never, it never works out. Um, you, you can't save anybody. That person first has to love themselves. And it's all about self-esteem. You know, if they do not love themselves first, there's no way you're ever going to save them. And trying to get away from this life, even having tried to work at and save a local bar, and he was very good at it, except for the drugs that kept coming in and out of this bar and supposedly a lot of money going missing. But Jeff did not have access to the bank accounts, and so no access to pay the bills. Needless to say, this bar no longer exists. So again, the, you know, the bigger point here is this. Anytime you add drugs, you add money, making and dealing drugs, possibly owing money or God knows what, you're not going to end up with a great ending to your ballad. And it's more than likely going to turn into a tragedy. So now that that's out in the open, because whether we want to or not, drugs do play a part in our story. The who's on it or making of drugs here do not matter because drugs are equal opportunity life destroyers and cause people to do things that they usually regret. So let's get into the official law enforcement version of this ballad of Jeffrey Vance, his disappearance and subsequent death as officially caused by the elements and exposure. Then the closing of the case by law enforcement and wrapped up nice and neat as just another simple and horrible accident in the Umpqua National Forest. If you have time, look up the Umpqua National Forest and you're going to see quite a few disappearances and odd events occurring there for such a small, again, national forest and area that's composed there. are Some very cool locations that you're going to hear about, uh, like the uh, Tokiti Falls and the Hot Springs area there. Very beautiful. So let's start this. So the timeline for the Jeffrey Vance case Number 19-0609, these are the actual facts of Douglas County Sheriff's Deputies and Investigative Division of Detective Summary Reports. On February 4th of this year, 2019, 9-11 Dispatch of Douglas County, Oregon received a call from the Glide store of Glide, Oregon for a possible missing person. We're going to start with Deputy Kevin Litton, 
On the 4th at 6.02 p.m., Deputy Litton was dispatched to 117 Brown, St. Glide, Oregon, the Glide store for a possible missing person. While en route, dispatch stated they received a call from an Anthony Fenimore who said he was hiking with his friend and they became separated and now his friend is missing. Upon arrival, Deputy Litton made contact with Anthony, who was showing signs supposedly of hypothermia. Deputy Litton requested medical personnel to respond and evaluate. I want to make a note here that actually before he even quoted uh, about the missing person, he stated that his truck had been stolen. Why he would say that is beyond me, um, but that is what occurred. He asked Fenimore to explain what happened. So this is what Anthony stated. Fenimore said on February, I'm sorry, from Friday the 2nd, uh, February 1st of 2019, that he traveled to the Diamond Lake area with his friend Jeffrey Vance. Fenimore said while driving, the gas tank on the trunk truck was punctured and the truck stopped running. Fenimore said they parked the truck in a wooded area and walked away from it, but did not know what time or day that was. Take note, please. Fenimore said as they were walking, they started discarding items from their backpacks to lighten their load. Fenimore said they reached a rock-faced cliff and he tried to start a fire but was unsuccessful. He said they couldn't start a fire, so they continued walking. Fenimore said he believes he blacked out again when he came to. After that, Jeffrey was just gone. I have, again, no idea why the man would black out. When you look at this area, folks, before I go any further, if you are able to pull up a map and you're going to find what you're going to want to look for is a uh, logging road called NF. Uh, 250 and what's around it their civilization literally just a few miles in all directions here this isn't like in the middle of nowhere that these guys are lost with no way to get to civilization or help so you know blacking out and all of this you know it was a bit chilly but they they were dressed they weren't in t-shirts um, you know, you could definitely survive for a bit of time, uh, especially what's causing him to black out is a mystery to me. So let's keep going here. I asked Fenimore when he last saw Jeffrey and he stated he remembers being with Jeffrey either Saturday night or Sunday morning, but hasn't seen him since. Fenimore said he woke up this morning. Keep note, this must be the morning of Monday the 4th of February, okay? He woke up face down in the snow, missing everything, which included the keys to his truck, his backpack, his gun, his axe, his wallet, and cell phone. Don't read too much into the gun issue, though there's some strangeness <laughs> there as well. I asked Fenimore if he could tell him where his vehicle was parked or where they started walking from. And Fenimore said he remembers passing a hydro plant and driving into the woods after that. Fenimore said while they were walking, he remembered looking at the map on his phone. Take note of this too. I'm going to keep telling you this because 
at one point he says he doesn't even have a phone and we find out he actually has two phones. And if he's looking at his phone, he said while they were walking, he remembered looking at the map on the phone. He saw that he was close to Clearwater Road. So Fenimore said he started walking towards that road. Then his phone had to have been working. Why not just make a call? Anyways, Fenimore said he ended up walking into the parking lot of the hot springs. Fenimore said he was able to get a good Samaritan to give him a ride to the glide store. He then called his friend LaBecca Springstead and told her what happened. Fenimore said Jeffrey had not been heard from and that she was unaware he was missing. Why did he not, again, why he was not on the phone to the police to report his best friend missing out in these woods that are so treacherous to him that he's blacking out is very suspicious, okay? I asked Fenimore what Jeffrey Vance was wearing when he last saw him. And Fenimore said Jeffrey was last seen wearing a dark-colored rain gear with a brown or gray Benny-style hat. He was carrying a camouflage internal fight backpack and full-sized axe. Anthony Fenimore was transported to Mercy Medical Center at this time, with being released just a couple of hours later. I contacted LaBecca Springstead. LaBecca Springstead said she knew Anthony Fenimore and Jeffrey Vance traveled to Diamond Lake area to explore. LaBecca said today she got a Facebook message from an unknown female who said she found Anthony Fenimore in the pal- I'm sorry, in the parking lot. LaBecca said that Anthony called her a few minutes later from the same Facebook account and told her Jeffrey was lost in the woods and added that he had not heard from Jeffrey. I was provided with Haley Barth Vance's phone number from LaBecca during our call. Haley has been identified as the wife of Jeffrey Vance. I made contact with Haley and she stated that she had last talked to Jeffrey on Friday, February 1st in the morning when he left the house after an argument. Haley said Jeffrey doesn't have any medical issues and is in good shape, though Jeffrey is not an outdoorsman, but he hikes often. Haley said her and Jeffrey have hiked the hot springs before, but they don't really know their way around that area. Anyways, they hike there quite often, but they don't know their way around the area. I advised Haley that Jeffrey Vance would be entered into the missing persons uh, as a missing person and asked her to contact them if she could uh, concerning Jeffrey. I then contacted records and asked to enter Jeffrey Vance as a missing person. I also contacted dispatch and had them broadcast an attempt to locate and asked dispatch to ping Jeffrey Vance's phone. The ping showed Jeffrey's phone was last used on the 3rd of February at 0938 hours. I attempted to call Jeffrey's phone, but the call went straight to voicemail. That's 930 in the morning. There's going to be some military time here. I'm not going to take the time to make the uh, changes. You can all figure that out on your own. Okay, it's pretty simple. Jeffrey was entered into LEDS slash NCIC as a missing person, and he 
and an ATL was broadcast on Law One. Law One is uh, like the uh, national news station for law enforcement. And the ATL is almost like a bolo kind of thing. It's like an all points bulletin type deal. Uh, Deputy Sid Greer contacted the Douglas County search and rescue personnel who responded to check the area. So now we're going to move to Deputy Brian Melvin. Deputy Brian Melvin reports on Monday, February 4th, 2019, Jeffrey Vance was reported to be hiking in the Tokiti area with his friend Anthony Fenimore. It was reported to me that Anthony Fenimore had parked on a road with a sign on that road reading road closed. Let me spell that for you too. That's T-O-K-E-T-E-E, Tokiti area. Okay, for everybody that wants to look on a map. It was reported to me that Anthony Fenimore had some kind of vehicle problem, so he and Jeffrey Vance decided to go for a hike. <laughs> okay. On the late evening of Monday, February 4th, Douglas County Search and Rescue was activated to locate Anthony Fenimore's vehicle. The vehicle needed to be found on Search and Rescue ground teams so they could begin their search for Jeffrey Vance makes sense, right? You would start your search from there and work outwards. Douglas County Search and Rescue 4x4 units began road searches in the Tokiti Umqua Hot Springs area. All roads within a five-mile radius were searched that night. The only roads not searched were roads closed by the National Forest Service. Makes sense, right? They would be closed and locked. So why begin your search there? The National Forest Service closed and locked those roads on November 31st of 2018. That evening, February 4th, again, while search and rescue was searching roads, it began to snow and about a half an inch accumulated that evening. Tuesday, February 5th, search and rescue searched the area and expanded the radius which, of course, they're going to do. But again, a five-mile radius, when you look at this map, is is quite enough area for them to be looking in if you look at the roads and these logging roads and where the hot springs are, where he supposedly came out, which really doesn't make sense once you see um, kind of where the truck was found and then he would have had to make a weird loop. It's just very weird. Detectives were brought in as an investigating uh, section of the search mission. Detectives began questioning friends and family members. Detectives had reason to believe something was suspicious at play with this case. So now let's move to Detective Todd Wingfield. I don't know why he was brought in. They already had um, detectives beginning this. And again, they had reason to believe that something was suspicious here and they immediately moved to another detective. So on February 5th at about 8 a.m., Detective Wingfield was briefed by Lieutenant Merrifield regarding Jeffrey Vance, who is missing in the Umqua National Forest near to Kiti Lake. I was assigned as the case officer at that point. Tuesday, February 5th, 2019, I spoke with LaBecca by telephone. LeBecca had picked up Anthony Fenimore from the MMC when he was released. That's the medical center. I asked LeBecca if Anthony would be available to be interviewed by a Marion County deputy. 
Rebecca said, Anthony doesn't have a phone. She wasn't sure if he would answer the door or not. Okay, that I'm sorry. That doesn't even make any sense. One, take note, she's saying he doesn't have a phone. Two, that he might not answer the door. Okay, if you're being told detectives are coming to interview you, you should answer the door. Not just should, but it should be required so that he can give some testimony since he was the last person to see him alive. Rebecca asked if I could call her when a deputy was en route to her house, and I contacted Marion County Sheriff's Office Dispatch and requested a deputy respond to Rebecca Springstead's residence. I also contacted Rebecca again by phone and advised her a deputy would be responding to her residence. Rebecca stated she had made arrangements at work and was headed home. At 10.55 a.m., I was contacted by Marion County Deputy Jeremy Vogel by telephone. I informed Deputy Vogel of the report involving Anthony Fenimore. I asked Deputy Vogel if he could interview Anthony. So, at about 11.27 a.m., Deputy Vogel contacted me by phone. I spoke to Deputy Vogel a total of four times over the phone. Anthony told Deputy Vogel the following information. Anthony said he and Jeff were driving to Diamond Lake. Diamond Lake was on the right and Clearwater was on the left side of the road. Anthony's truck is a two-wheel drive Chevy Colorado. He said his truck was behind a closed gate. He had walked to the hot springs and he was carrying a clear plastic tub. Anthony remembered being on a solid rock surface at one point. Anthony woke up face down in the snow holding a jumper box. Anthony said Jeff was last seen wearing that dark blue or black Helly Hansen rain gear Jeff also had a pack frame. I want you all also to make note that that jumper box is what you would use to jump a vehicle or other devices, say to charge a phone or any other device. Anthony, uh, again, said he woke up face down. He said he was missing a high point nine millimeter, uh, excuse me, nine millimeter semi-automatic pistol with two rounds. The gun belonged to Lobeca. Anthony had the pistol because Jeff was possibly afraid of bears. Anthony said he remembered driving on the NF-250 road or NF-350 road. This concluded the interview. I had spoken with Anthony's sister, Samantha Fenimore, and Samantha said Anthony's father was a logger. Anthony possibly had keys to access these locked gates on logging roads. Well, that's pretty, uh, anyways, I contacted deputy Rick held by telephone and relayed to him the information regarding Anthony Fenimore, possibly having keys to access clothes roads in the area, which again is very suspicious and just, I don't know. Moving to detective Jason Fort. Detective Jason Fort states, Anthony Fenimore, Jeff Vant's friend, best friend, who had been reported missing, and he reported him missing, though he initially, remember, now this is when he says it, he reported his pickup stolen to dispatch. Your best friend's up in the woods, still missing. You've blacked out a few times. You supposedly have hypothermia 
and you're reporting your truck as being stolen. You're you're more concerned about that and getting in trouble than reporting Jeff missing. Sounds to me like you're stalling for time, but that's just me. I'm your host and I'm just trying to be objective here. Detective Jason Fort states that though Anthony initially reported Fenimore's pickup stolen to dispatch, Fenimore later advised that his pickup had actually been stuck and disabled behind a closed National Forest Service gate. I later requested a copy of the 911 call to dispatch, which was attached to the case file. On Tuesday, February 5th at 10.21, I sent a preservation letter to T-Mobile regarding one of Anthony Fenimore's cell phone numbers. Wait a minute, I thought he did not have a phone and notice numbers plural. Detective Chris Taylor sent a preservation letter to Verizon Wireless regarding the following target numbers. One for Jeff, one for LaBecca, and one for Haley. During the initial investigation, a request was sent to T-Mobile and Verizon Wireless via dispatch to perform a geographic locate or a ping on both Fenimore and Vance's cell phones. I later received that copy of the call detail records, uh, records for Fenimore and Vance's cell phones. After reviewing the CDRs, I learned that the last recorded location for Vance's phone was on February 3rd at about 10, 12 a.m. The cell phone was believed to be approximately 3.1 miles southeast from Verizon Tower, 1648, using Sector 1 by 30 degrees. So take note. Which was approximately the same distance from the tower and area where Fenimore's truck was later located. It appeared that Fenimore's Verizon phone was using the same tower as Vance's phone was in the same relative area, 3.4 miles from the tower. Fenimore's phone was in the same general area until about 12 a.m. when I noted no additional activities on that day, February 3rd of 2019. I was later given access to Jeff Vance's Gmail account per Vance's family, Haley Vance, which showed a Google account timeline for Vance's phone. The timeline showed a log of activities and approximate locations where the phone was located during the timeline, which was consistent with the same route Vance and Fenimore's phone traveled. On Tuesday, February 5th at about 3 p.m., Haley Vance, Jeff's estranged wife, made contact with Detective Wingfield and I regarding information she'd received from Anthony Fenimore's sister, Samantha. Haley had received screenshots of Fenimore's Google locations timeline, which showed places that Fenimore had visited prior to Jeff's disappearance. So there's a copy of screenshots in the case file. I don't know why they have to get these from the sister. Um, you're, you're a detective. You, you should have this. Anyways, Detective Rick Held states on Tuesday, February 5th, I was notified of a missing person in the Tokiti area of Douglas County. I was told we were looking for a maroon Chevy Colorado pickup with Oregon plate 436 KSW. 
There were several SAR OSP units and Forest Service LEO also searching for pickup and the and also Jeffrey Vance. These are all uh, people that are involved with search and rescue. Okay, At about 10.40 a.m., Douglas County Emergency Communications Dispatch advised that one of Vance's family members reported the truck might be parked on NF-250 or NF-350 near the gate. These, again, are logging roads. Myself and Forest Service Leo, Matt Oliver, he's one of the people that are searchers, checked the area around Clearwater to Four Bay, which is in the area of NF-250 Road. There was heavy snow in the area. We followed NF-250 Road until we came to that closed and locked gate. This gate had a road-closed sign. Oliver has keys to the Forest Service gates in the area, and we tried to unlock the gate. None of his keys fit that lock, which he thought was weird. Well, I would too if I was part of the forestry division and the lock would not open. The heavy snow at the gate and beyond the gate showed no signs of anyone having gone through the gate since the snow had fallen. We continued our search in the area looking for a reported NF-350 road. Losing lots of time here. Myself and Oliver contacted some Pacific Corps workers on the roadway who advised us some of the Connex boxes in the area had been broken into early Sunday morning, February 3rd. They advised this had already been reported to the detectives working this case. At 2 p.m., a Pacific Corps employee advised myself and Deputy Sid Greer of a very suspicious vehicle parked at the locked NF-250 road. They advised that this was a silver Toyota pickup with two males in it. At 2.40 p.m., we found that silver Toyota pickup bearing Oregon plate 713JYE parked in front of the lock gate. We contacted the owner of the pickup. His name is Jesse Goldsby. I advised Goldsby the conversation was being recorded. This person is of note. Jesse Goldsby stated he was there with another friend. His friend had already crossed the gate and was walking up the hill in the snow looking for the missing pickup and Jeffrey Vance and stated that he is a friend of Jeff and Anthony's. He was told by the family Vance's uh, missing truck might be past the locked gate on NF-250, and they were going to walk in the area to try to locate it. Well, isn't that just perfect timing and just perfect information? I mean, if you look, I mean, there's hundreds of these roads. How they would know this is, is just amazing to me. Amazing luck. I told Goldsby if they locate the truck to call Douglas County Emergency Communications. Why would the detective allow anybody past a locked forestry gate, okay, that isn't involved, they are not detectives, they could be possible suspects. He was there with another friend. His friend had already crossed that gate, okay? They locate the truck, how about that, to call Douglas County Emergency Communications, 
Jesse Goldsby called dispatch and advised he did locate that truck several miles above the lock gate. Now, isn't that lucky? Detective Chris Taylor stated on Tuesday, February 5th at approximately 5.45 p.m., Detective Jason Fort and I responded to the area area of Tokiti, 4 Bay 2, to investigate the discovery of the vehicle associated with the missing person case. We contacted Deputy Greer. While talking to Deputy Greer, Jesse Goldsby, and now this John Manzingo, were on their way down from the vehicle. Goldsby and Manzingo are friends of Anthony Fenimore and Jeff Vance, and came down from Mount Angel in Silverton, Oregon area. Jesse Goldsby and Manzingo located Fenimore's vehicle behind that locked forest gate on NF-252 Road. They received information from Vance's roommate that Vance and Fenimore's vehicle was disabled and that Vance was still lost in the woods in the Umpqua National Forest, and they came down to search for him. Isn't that great? Goldsby and Manzingo told me they located the vehicle behind the closed gate because that was the road and information they received from Vance's wife, Haley. Why didn't Haley give that information to the detectives? Why would she give that information to these two? Goldsby told me when they located the vehicle, the passenger door was open and they saw a sleeping bag under the vehicle and a jug of juice on the ground Next to the vehicle, Goldsby and Manzingo provided us with directions to the vehicle. We had prior knowledge the gate had a lock on it, and that was not a Forest Service lock. Deputy Greer cut the personal lock off the gate, and we proceeded to attempt to locate the vehicle. We attempted to locate the vehicle that night, but due to snowy conditions, we were not able to reach the vehicle. We decided to relock the gate and return the following day. I would have already been extremely suspicious already if there had been a lock on this gate that was not an official forestry lock that just happened to be the road that the truck was located. Okay, so on Wednesday, February 6th at 9 a.m., I returned to the search area myself. Deputy Greer, Deputy Brent Everett, and several SAR units had to use snowcats and chainsaws to cut heavy brush to get to the vehicle's location off of a spur road. So who knows, it could have even been pushed or moved, but anything by the two gentlemen who have nothing to do with this case and were up there around the evidence. At about 11 a.m., we made it to the missing truck, finally. Detectives also made it to the truck right behind us, additional detectives. Detective Chris Taylor and Detective Jason Fort walked down to the vehicle. Detective Chris Taylor recorded a video walk around the vehicle. There was a considerable amount of snow in and around the vehicle. I don't see why this really matters. Detective Fort and Detective Taylor noted the passenger side door was open and the driver's side door window had been shattered. Although the vehicle was in disarray, there was no indication of a person's or a crime near the vehicle. Well, the passenger side door was open and the driver's side door window had been shattered. You wouldn't even know at that point if a crime had been committed or if it was just caused 
by maybe a branch falling. I don't know. I mean, a million things. But you don't know at that point. So how can you say there has been no crime committed? Okay, make sense? All right, so Joe's towing responded to recover the vehicle. Detective Fort and Detective Taylor followed the tow truck with the vehicle to the sheriff's office impound lot. So now let's move again to Todd Wingfield. On Wednesday, February 6th, 2019, about 10.10 a.m., Detective Todd Wingfield stated, I received a call from Mount Angel Police Officer Clement Lau. Officer Lau told me he was contacted by Joseph Zeese in Mount Angel, Oregon. Joseph Zeese had bought a truck from Jeffrey Vance about a year ago. Joseph had located Jeff's debit card, Oregon interim paper ID card, Marion County marriage license, his birth certificate, and other such scattered items throughout the truck. Joseph told Officer Lau that he decided to turn in the documents since Jeff had gone missing. Well, that was very nice of him. Not a person of interest here, but just interesting, incredibly important documents are left in this vehicle. I I don't understand that. I contacted LeBecca by telephone February 6th at 12 p.m. I told LeBecca that I would like to set up a time to interview Anthony Fenimore in person. LeBecca agreed to meet me at the Oregon State Police in Springfield around 3.30 p.m. While Detective Matt Racine and I were on route to Springfield to meet LeBecca and Anthony, I had a missed call from LeBecca, and so he returned that call. LeBecca advised she had gotten Anthony a new phone. Pause. She had already dropped off Anthony at Cabela's in Eugene and was already back on route home. Lebecca said Anthony was going to buy some rain gear and Anthony was headed to Roseburg to search for Jeff. Oh, that's amazing of him. Finally, he's on his way to help find his best friend. At about 5.05 p.m., he received a text message from Anthony stating he was at a Super 8 motel in Roseburg. I exchanged text messages with Anthony regarding what was going on with the search. Anthony indicated he was going to head up to the area and search for Jeff. Why is he exchanging messages with him about the search? This is the last person to see Jeffrey Vance who is missing. They have no idea if he is alive or dead, or if a crime has been committed, they don't have any information. But they are passing information back and forth. I advise him not to, as first it was getting dark. Next, the Douglas County search and rescue team was already conducting a search in the area. I advise Anthony if he went up in the area before SAR returned, it would likely only hamper efforts to locate Jeff. Well, yeah, thanks for stating that. Uh, You should have said, absolutely, positively, 100%, do not go in that area. There's already people searching there that are professionals. Deputy Brian Melvin, we're moving to him now. February 6th at 5.40 p.m., as stated by Deputy Brian Melvin, search and rescue units were taken to the pickup and they began a ground search around it. 
Snow, again, around the pickup made things a bit difficult to search. I don't know why. There was about a foot of snow on the ground at this time. Nightfall came at 5.30, so search and rescue personnel were brought back to base. No longer searching. Thursday, February 7th at 7.30 a.m., Detectives Chris Taylor and I went to that Super 8 motel in Roseburg, Oregon. As we were pulling into the parking lot, I observed Anthony Fenimore walking in the parking lot. Detective Taylor asked Anthony if he would be willing to go to the sheriff's office for an interview. Anthony agreed to meet at the sheriff's office. Well, isn't that nice of him? Since he so politely asked him if he would be willing to go there for an interview. At about 8.10 a.m., Detectives Todd Wingfield states, Detective Fort and I interviewed Anthony. I asked Anthony how he got to the road where he met the two females who gave him a ride into town. Now take note, those are the two individuals that will be on our next episode. Because believe me, it gets even crazier. Anthony said he had never dealt with the cold like that before. The cold really, excuse my language, fucked with his head. He had woken up that morning face down in the snow. He was holding a Stanley jump box in his hand, and he knew Jeff had been carrying that jump box. Jeff had taken the jump box when they left the truck because he doesn't like to leave his tools. Yeah, that's, of course, the first thing you're thinking of when you're trying to get out after being stranded out in the woods to get back to civilization. And yes, it is cold, not cold enough to die, but it's cold. I'd want to get out of there too. I don't think that I would be taking my tools with me. They left the truck because he doesn't like to leave his tools. Anthony didn't know how he woke up that morning with the jump box in his hands. That is strange. Anthony said after they left the truck and got down into the woods, they realized their packs were too heavy because they had the tools in it. So they needed to unload them. Somewhere out in the woods, there was a whole cache of tools, clothes, and two trail cameras. The jump box had been left with all the other items. So they just kind of dropped like a trail of breadcrumbs, their things in their backpack that obviously they shouldn't have taken in the first place. They were not thinking at all. Though let's just make this clear. Anthony wasn't thinking because we have no idea at all what Jeff was thinking, or if Jeff was even there at the time. We don't know. Anthony said after they left the truck and got down into the woods, they realized their packs were too heavy. They needed to unload. The jump box had been left with all the other items, as I mentioned. He last remembered walking with Jeff up a cliff. Anthony would climb up the rocks a little bit and then shine his light down for Jeff to climb up. Jeff had a wooden handle, axe, and a yellow-handled hatchet he was using to climb up the mountain. (laughs) Okay. Anthony said they climbed to the top and tried to start a fire. They couldn't get that fire started. Anthony remembered one of the last things he told Jeff was that they had to start moving or they were going to freeze to death. Because he's the experienced one here and he's the one with the clear head and Jeff is afraid of bears and really isn't an outdoorsman, has no idea what he's doing. Totally false. Anyways, Anthony said when he woke up, he started walking downhill. Anthony said he heard a slushing sound and 
It was the sound of a car driving down the road. Well, of course, because civilization is everywhere around them. That's when he came, came out at milepost one on N, I'm sorry, on FS3401 Road. That's 3401 Road. Anthony said he came across some people on that road. They pointed him in the right direction towards the gate. Anthony walked out to the gate. He walked down the main road and went up to one of the residences in the area. So this is person one. Anthony told the person he had been lost in the woods for two days. Anthony asked the male where the ranger station was. The male told him it was two miles down the road. Something's missing there, isn't there? Anthony contacted the Tokiti campground host and asked where the ranger station was twice. The camp host told the ranger station was two miles down the road. Anthony then wandered around in the area and came back to the closed gate on the Hot Springs Road. That is when he came across again, the two females that gave him a ride down into Glide. They gave him a, a Diet Pepsi and $10 when they got down there. But we're going to talk about this later, trust me. Detective Fort asked Anthony if they had left town on Thursday. Anthony said they left on Friday because his sister saw him on Thursday. They left town late Friday around 8 p.m. They were planning on driving to Bend. They were going out Highway 138 and were going to loop back up towards Bend. He and Jeff together all day Friday, and Jeff was supposed to go do a job, but didn't. Sometimes Anthony and Jeff return pallets and get paid $2.50 a piece for them. They also buy and sell things online. This is, I guess, supposedly what he's reporting they do for a living. Anthony said they were screwing around Cottage Grove on Saturday. They stopped at Cottage Grove, and Anthony showed Jeff a box culvert that he had worked on. Anthony said they arrived in Roseburg on Saturday, and Anthony said his friend, Travis Swader's father, Clayton Hunt, lived on Turkey Creek. Anthony doesn't know Clayton too well, but they hung out at the residence for a while, but no one was home. I don't even, I don't even understand that. Uh, they just kind of hung out there, I guess, apparently waiting for this swatter to, to arrive. Detective Ford again asked Anthony where they slept Friday night. Anthony said they didn't sleep at all. They just drove. Then went and checked out a boat ramp near Turkey Creek. They also drove through some of the parks. Anthony said they drove into town and got fuel. They also stopped at a thrift store in town, and they stopped at all the little campgrounds along Highway 138. Because, of course, you got to have some kind of timeline here that makes sense. So. They stopped at every campground, which, you know, they live there. <laughs> why, why are these campgrounds of such interest? They were headed to Diamond Lake and wanted to stop at the hot springs. I again asked Anthony what he was doing between that time. They left Mount Angel around 8 and still being in college, I'm sorry, Cottage Grove on Saturday. It should be noted the drive from Mount Angel to Cottage Grove would have been around two to two and a half hours, and that's it. Anthony said they were, excuse my language, fucking off in Weyhauser property, at the property there. 
they were driving in the woods outside of Cottage Grove. Anthony then changed the subject and asked what the status was regarding Jeff. Detective Fort and I explained to Anthony that we were trying to get a timeline to help with the search. That's why they're asking him these questions and he's providing them answers that don't make any sense. Anthony said he didn't know how he became separated from Jeff. He and Jeff were together up to the point where they tried to make that fire. Jeff had some fire starting cubes in his backpack. Jeff's strap broke on his backpack and he flung it off his back. Yeah, that makes sense. And notice that Jeff had fire starting cubes. He's actually the person that has survival, anything used to survive outside of having shelter in the woods, those fire starting cubes. Why would they not just use them and why would he fling his backpack? This is just not true. Let's just say it, okay? Anthony said between the time he and Jeff emptied their packs, climbed up the hill, he couldn't remember anything during that time. Anthony didn't know the effects of the cold that were having on him. I guess he had never been in cold weather his entire life, though he's from Oregon. Anthony said it was dark when they left. Anthony said it felt like we were trying to trip him up on the timeline. Well, hopefully they would, being detectives. And hopefully Anthony would stick to something that makes sense of the same timeline. He's jumping everywhere. If, and you're noticing it, and I apologize for that in the way that I'm describing this, but this is the way it's being described in the reports. So again, Anthony said it was dark when they left. I felt like he was being tripped up on that timeline. So again, Detective Ford asked what time they got up to the area of Tokiti. Anthony said late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. Jeff told Anthony that he thought they were near Timothy Lake. Timothy Lake is up near Silverton, where they are from. Anthony said they followed the canal for a little bit. Detective Fort showed Anthony a map of the area. Anthony pointed at campgrounds on the map and said they stopped at all of them. Anthony remembered seeing the forebay. Anthony said while they were driving down the road, they hit a water bar and punctured the gas tank. They tried to turn the truck around and it just spun the tires. I asked Anthony if there was any damage to his vehicle. I, he just said they punctured the gas tank. That would be damage to the vehicle. Anthony said he then got pissed off and punched out his window. So now he's providing that information much later of how his window became broken. Anthony said he also dropped his sleeping bag onto the gas and the mud conveniently. I asked Anthony whose tools were in the back of his truck, and Anthony said they belonged to him and Jeff, and it depended on what job they did. This is not true, just so you know. Detective Fort asked Anthony what their plan was once they loaded up their packs. Anthony said he looked at his map, and it showed Clearwater ro Road, was close. They thought they were going to drop down the hill right to the road. I asked Anthony if he saw a gate on the road he drove down. Anthony said the gate was open. There was a road close sign on it, but the gate wasn't closed, so they drove down it. We remember this is a lie, though. The gate was closed and locked. Okay. 
Detective Ford explained to Anthony regarding a different lock had been placed on that gate. Anthony said, well, they closed the gate and put their lock on it. They put the lock on the gate since the road was closed and they didn't want to get into trouble. They didn't want to get into trouble for being out there. Anthony said Jeff thought he saw a bear. Then they started working their way back up the hill. Jeff didn't have a light, so Anthony would climb up and then shine the light for Jeff. See, he's jumping all over the place. I asked Anthony about the firearm he told Deputy Litton about. Anthony said he had the pistol after they started unloading their packs, and the gun wasn't in a holster and only had two rounds. Detective Fort asked Anthony if he usually carried the gun with only two rounds in it. Anthony said no, he usually carries more, but had grabbed a forty caliber ammo instead. I asked Anthony at what point did he get separated from Jeff? Again, Anthony said even before they got up to where they started the fire, Jeff's legs were cramping up now. So it's Jeff's fault. Jeff couldn't walk that well. The area where they started to start that fire had trees with red bark. They couldn't get the fire started, and Anthony's hands were so cold that he could not get the lighter to light. Anthony had to have Jeff's light the lighter. I'm sorry, he's saying that he had to ask Jeff to light the lighter. What happened to those fire-starting cubes? Ah, boy. It's tough to read this. Anthony said he woke up the next morning face down in that snow and he was wearing jeans, t-shirt, sweatshirt, and boots. He was not dressed for the weather. He was not expecting the weather to go bad. It started to snow before they left the truck. Uh, you know, again, folks, I can, living in Oregon in a place like that, and it's, you know, winter, most people obviously know the weather, what it's going to be, especially if they're out driving around. They want to go, quote, on this boys' time out, out into the woods. But maybe they didn't. Um, I doubt that highly, though. Anthony said, take note, he had two cell phones. Anthony had a Motorola 6 and a Galaxy S9. The Galaxy S9 cell phone still had battery life when they tried to start a fire. Keep that in mind. Remember how far they had to walk from the truck where they should have stayed at where shelter was. Started hiking, dropping all of these tools out along the way that supposedly Jeff didn't want to have stolen from his truck like that was so important to him. This is really just a trail that I believe Anthony left so that there was a timeline or some type of visual evidence of the direction that they were going in. But again, his phone is working. He just says it right there. Why wasn't he making a phone call? And he's looking at a map anyways. And had already been able to look at that map. If he was able to look at it there, he should have been able to at the truck and they could have just walked down a civilization. Boom. End of story. Anthony told his sister to ping the Galaxy S9 since that was the last place he and Jeff were together. Detective Fort and I showed the items that were recovered around Anthony's truck. I showed Anthony a pair of camo pants. Anthony said they were his. Anthony said the other items that they couldn't pack out, he put in bags. Anthony hid the items away from the truck so no one would steal them. I would think I would take those pants with me and... Not the tools, but that's just me. 
and I'm a Florida boy. I don't live out in the mountains. The bags collected around Anthony's truck contained miscellaneous tools, seat covers, pry bars, and that sleeping bag, the one that was covered with the gas. So the detectives or whoever found the truck would know that this punctured tank uh, must have occurred, even though no one even checked to see if indeed there was a hole in the gas tank. All the items were placed into the detective temporary evidence locker. The interview was terminated. Moving to Detective Chris Taylor at approximately 8.20 a.m. on February 7th, Chris Taylor states, Deputy Matt Racine and I re-interviewed Manzingo and Goldsby regarding the details they learned regarding Anthony Fenimore and Jeff Vance getting lost in the Umpqua National Forest. Goldsby and Manzingo's story remained consistent with their initial interview. Well, it's a pretty easy story. When asked if they had removed any of the items from the vehicle, Goldsby and Manzingo deny taking anything out of the vehicle, even though they should not have been there. Okay, I don't even need to tell you, because I know everybody that's listening is smart enough to know they shouldn't even have been there. They only checked a sleeping bag, which was under the vehicle, and moved a plastic tarp that was inside the vehicle to ensure Jeff Vance was not there. Again, inside the vehicle, which should be closed off area for evidence, since there's a missing person. And this is where everything starts from. Upon completing the interviews, all the detectives, accompanied by Detective Joe Canny and Dan Allen, returned to the area where the vehicle was located to continue searching for Jeff Vance. Notice all these names, all of these detectives. There's quite a few here that are involved with this Todd Wingfield now being in charge after the original detective who had noticed immediately suspicious activity. We haven't even heard that one time after. Everyone met at the incident command post located at 7200 Tokiti School Road at Idealid Park. Anthony Fenimore rode with Jesse Goldsby and John Manzingo. The last man to see Jeff, and he's not even with the detectives. We escorted Anthony to where his truck was recovered. Anthony showed us some of the items he and Jeff had removed from the vehicle. Now, this is different. The tailgate of the truck had been removed and made into a makeshift sled. I observed the battery to the truck was inside a milk crate strapped to the tailgate. They Now, now picture that. They took the battery out of the truck. They attached it to the back of the truck. God knows what reason. Now, for me, I would have been using that battery to start a fire, perhaps, with the, with the sparking of the battery, maybe. But they took the tailgate off and made it into a sled, which might have been smart. But if you were putting sleeping bags and things that are going to help keep you alive, perhaps... There were several items located a short distance down the road from where the truck was recovered. Anthony was able to lead us to the spot where he and Jeff tried to start the fire, so that could not have been very far away at all. 
Anthony showed us where his pack was. We asked Anthony to step away from the area to reduce, finally, the risk of contamination. I photographed the items. I observed Anthony's black and gray pack. I asked Anthony if it was okay to look through the items. Anthony said, yeah. During the search of the backpack, I located his high point model C9 9mm semi-automatic pistol. I removed the magazine from the gun. The gun was, I'm sorry, the magazine was empty. The pistol had one round a federal 9mm plus P located in the chamber. I placed the pistol and magazine into the backpack I was carrying. Now, I don't get this because there was supposed to be two rounds in the gun, but this is in the official detective's reports. Somebody made a major mistake here uh, on that information. Why, I don't know. I also collected the two cell phones I located in the backpack. <sighs> his, the one that was flung, his phones are in it. The ones that are supposedly working. Also located a Dell laptop computer, Bushnell binoculars, two cell phones, a knife with a wooden handle, and other miscellaneous items. I also located several padlocks and keys. I also located several Dremel power, uh, power tool accessories for cutting metal and the charging unit for their Dremel power tool. To me, that's what you'd use to cut locks and then maybe, you know, put your own lock back onto something. During the interview, Anthony at the office, Anthony said he attempted to start a fire inside that small plastic container. And again, I don't know where those fire starting cubes went. While searching through the items, he located a multiple partially burned USDA Forest Service parking camping payment envelope inside of that small plastic de uh, container. Detective Racine later, later carried the items back to the incident command post. At this point in the search, three detectives stayed at the top of the ridge. Detective Taylor, Detective Fort and I stayed with Anthony and continued down the mountain looking for other items. John and Jesse continued down the hill with them. I'm shaking my head. John and Jesse continued down the hill with them. Why they need their help, I don't know. Uh, what do these guys have to do with this case? All they're doing is contaminating the area. Anthony was able to locate the other location where they had left some more gear. I photographed the items. The sleeping bag, two pairs of pants now. Now get this. 30-inch set of bolt cutters, 24-inch set bolt cutters, shoes, and other miscellaneous items. Again, bolt cutters to cut locks, things of that nature. Um, you know, off of the gates, but also maybe off of the forestry boxes to get to money. I photographed the items. John Manzingo and Jesse Goldsby and Anthony collected the items and carried them down the mountain. Oh my God. Folks, this is evidence. All of this. Manzingo, Goldsby, and the last man to see Jeff alive are carrying down the evidence down the mountain. We continued down the drainage and came out on the Tokiti Hot Springs Road, FS 
3401 Road. Detective Fort contacted Deputy Greer to meet us, this band of merry men, the detective and these people, too, and the last person to see Jeff alive, on the road to give us a ride back to the incident command post. Anthony Fenimore's truck was located 1.5 miles from that lock gate on NF252 Road. Make note of that. That is good to make note of. So when you look at the map, it's going to give you a good location because that part at least is factual. Deputy Greer gave Detective Taylor, Detective Fort, Jesse Goldsby, John Mazingo, Anthony Fenimore, and I a ride back. Deputy Greer then gave Detective Fort, Jesse, and Detective Taylor a ride back up the road to get the other vehicles that were left. Detective Todd Wingfield states, I stayed with Anthony Fenimore and John Manzingo at the incident command post. John and Anthony were talking back and forth, and Anthony asked where his truck was. Manzingo replied Anthony's truck was in impound. Why is he answering this question? John said Anthony's truck was in car jail. Anthony said he didn't care about the truck and that we could have it. Anthony didn't want to pay the impound fee. I actually thought at that moment I was going to say he was more worried about his friend, but he's actually more worried about the impound fee. At this time, I activated my Axon body camera. I had not been discussing the case with Anthony prior to this point while at the incident command post. Anthony said he had bought three guns from the money he had won playing video poker. Anthony said he bought a 9mm, a 22 caliber, and a 17 caliber rifle. Anthony also said he had a 40 caliber gun. Deputy held arrived back at the incident command post and he ended the recording due to not discussing the investigation with Anthony and John. Oh my God, what a great idea. Finally, a good idea not to discuss the investigation with the last human to see Jeffrey alive and this John Mazingo person. Anthony later asked what the next step in the investigation would be. I explained to Anthony that we would meet back in Roseburg at the sheriff's office. Anthony Fenimore and John Manzingo remained outside the building. Well, I went inside the Pacific Corps office. I told Sergeant Caney we planned on interviewing Anthony again at the sheriff's office. Sergeant Caney told me that Anthony Fenimore was leaving. I walked outside and he observed Anthony leaving with John Mazingo and Jesse Goldsby. Anthony had loaded up the items they collected in his vehicle. Bizarre. I, I'm literally almost speechless. I'm going to read that again. I walked outside and observed Anthony leaving with John and Jesse. He had wanted to interview him again. Anthony Fenimore had loaded up the items that they collected evidence in his vehicle. I had no further contact with Anthony Fenimore. On Friday, February 8th, Douglas County Star was supported by Jackson and Josephine search and rescue teams. More areas around the vehicle as well as drainages were searched. 
By this time, more snow had fallen and there was about two feet of snow on the ground. Searches began searching the ridges and dra- uh, drainages towards Thorn Prairie Road. The vegetation was very thick there and the terrain was very steep. It was almost vertical in some areas. More snow began to fall heavily and searchers were pulled out of the area due to not being able to see the ground. So I can understand that. Detective Todd Wingfield states on February 8th at 12.54 p.m., he received a text from Anthony stating, did you guys search today or play with each other all day? Like, <laughs> so he's like making some kind of demand on the detectives. Um, anyways, so because he is, he's actually in charge here. If you guys have noticed, he's the one that actually is in charge here of the investigation. In the ensuing days, a large storm passed through the area and left behind several feet of snow in the area where it was believed that Jeff Vance was last known to be at. The storm was so powerful that it prevented any further searching. It was determined the search for Jeff Vance would have to be discontinued until the snow melted. And that's a shame because that that is true. And it's very unfortunate that that occurred. Very lucky maybe for somebody or some people, perhaps, hypothetically. Oregon State Police Detective Brian Asmus interviewed Lebecca Springstead. Lebecca stated she had purchased the High Point 9mm at Cabela's in Lacey, Washington. Lebecca had given the gun to Anthony two weeks ago. Lebecca gave Anthony her gun because his gun had a locked up slide, but then again, he had three or four different guns. On Monday, February 11th through February 19th, Deputy Sid Greer states while assisting on this search, I was in contact several times with Vance's mother, Angela Carroll, by telephone. Carroll told me her son Jeff was a good outdoorsman and didn't believe he would get lost. She said Jeff and his wife had a business in Mount Angel, Oregon, and lost it due to his wife stealing money from the business and doing drugs. All true. Carol told me Jeff's white van was missing as well. She said he had all of his tools in it and believed it might have clues to his disappearance. She said it came from Jeff's boss in Kansas and didn't have a license plate, but had temporary Kansas permit on it. This is his van, again, with his tools. Those tools in the back of that truck were not Jeff's. They were Anthony's tools. She had talked to a woman who lived with Jeff and his wife. She said the woman told her that Anthony Fenimore told her they were up in the woods to steal from feed tubes in campgrounds. So let's move back to Detective Wingfield again. On or about Tuesday, February 12th at about 8.30 a.m., Detective Todd Wingfield states, I contacted Courtney Goble, who is a friend of Jeff Vance. Courtney Goble lives in Salina, Kansas. Courtney stated she received a Snapchat on 2-2-19 at 6.48 p.m. Kansas time from Jeff. The snap was from uh, Jeff and it stated he could be high and lost in the woods. I asked Courtney if Jeff smoked marijuana and Courtney said no, the other M word. I confirmed with Courtney Jeff used meth. Courtney said Jeff had suspected Haley of cheating on him with her roommate 
Jeff had secretly installed a game camera and he had uh, apparently, I guess, seen Haley's bedroom and supposedly, supposedly captured Haley having sex with their roommate. So Jeff and Haley had a confrontation over that. I bet. <laughs> Haley claimed it was her and Jeff on the camera. <laughs> this supposedly occurred just before Jeff and Anthony left on their trip. So that's important. Courtney also had received photos from Jeff from when he was in the Roseburg area the weekend before. Courtney later emailed me the photos of Jeff. Courtney did not save the Snapchat content due to it being erased after it was viewed. On Wednesday, February 26th at about 7.48 a.m., I contacted Jeff's mother, Angela Carroll, by phone. Angela is currently living in Salina, Kansas. Angela said when she came to Oregon, she met with Haley. Angela thought it was very weird that Haley wanted to meet at her work and not at her house. One of Angela's family members secretly recorded the conversation with Haley. Haley is Jeff's Vance's wife, as we stated earlier. It was reported that their relationship was on and off again, and Jeff had been living in Kansas, then moved back to Oregon to be with Haley. Angela said Haley first said she had hot-wired Jeff's van. Haley said a male named John Deere now had the van. (laughs) John Deere. Okay. Angela looked around Mount Angel for this John Deere, but quickly learned it was a fake person. Okay. Angela said Michelle Bruner told her Jeff's van was parked at Anthony Fenimore's mom's house. And uh, remember that Michelle Bruner is where they had been living. The van is still registered to Jeff's boss in Kansas. Angela is currently working with the registered owner to get the title and transfer it over to her name. Angela requested the van be looked through. Once the paperwork has been gone through, Angela said Jeff had seen a recording of Haley having sex with somebody. Jeff then realized it was him in the video and felt embarrassed. Angela said Jeff had admitted to using meth and Jeff told her he used it here and there but didn't have a problem. Angela said Michelle Brumer told her she talked to Anthony and Anthony told Michelle that he took up Jeff up there to steal from that pay box. Angela said LaBecca and Haley were texting all week before Anthony was reported missing. So you can see they have an open relationship and, you know, he's, he's admitted a, a little bit of drug use. It's again, becoming rampant, but it's all of these people that are around Jeff that are causing these issues. Deputy Sid Greer states on Thursday, February 14th, at about 9 a.m., I went to the Pacific Corps offices at the Tokiti Control Center, contacted Clayton Sasser there. Sasser had made a copy of a video that was taken on Sunday, February 3rd. This video shows a vehicle pulling up to Clearwater Power Plant Number 1 on Clearwater River Road at about 4.08 a.m. on the timestamp from the video. It was dark at this time. The video shows the headlights from the video and two people shining flashlights. You can't see what type of vehicle or the two subjects, just the lights. I asked Sasser if this timestamp on the video was correct, and Sasser told me the timestamp 
was six minutes slow. So that would make the timestamp actually 4.14 a.m. This video was shown to Detective Wingfield and then entered into evidence on the case. February 14th, again, I went to, to the Toki D campground and contacted the camp host, Jim Hale. Jim Hale stated that mail showed up at his door to his trailer on Monday, February 4th. He said the mail knocked on his door and asked directions to that ranger station, and he was stranded. He said he told the mail how to get there and pointed in the direction he needed to walk. Remember, about two miles. I asked Hale if the mail mentioned anything about his friend being lost. Hale said the mail didn't say anything about another person or anyone being lost. I showed Hale two DMV photographs from my mobile data computer, one of Jeff and one of Anthony. I asked Hale if the male that he talked to was one of these men. Hale pointed to Fenimore and said him. I asked Hale how sure he was. Hale said he was positive. I asked Hale if he remembered what time on Monday the mail came by. Hale told me at, uh, on the video, you could tell that it was that exact time, but no, again, just six minutes before. He said he has a surveillance camera on his door. He said the timestamp again was fast. Hale pulled the video, which was timestamped 1.51 p.m. on Monday, February 4th. I watched the video and that mail, and it was Anthony Fenimore. I used my Axon body cam to record video. Also Monday, February 14th, I contacted Stephanie Hoford. Hoford works for the Forest Service at the front desk of the ranger station. I asked Hoford if she remembered anyone coming into that ranger station on Monday, February 4th. Stephanie stated she writes down every visitor that comes into the ranger station. She said that on February 4th, only two people came into the ranger station. Said Pacific Corps manager and a cell phone worker needing access to a tower. That's it. Also Monday, February 14th, I contacted Ricky Wilson at his home at 7274 Tokiti Ringden Road. Wilson is an employee and Pacific Corps, and his residence is close to the gate to the Umpqua Hot Springs uh, area. I asked Wilson if anyone came by. Wilson stated a male did come by at 1 p.m. on Monday, February 4th, and knocked on his door. He said the male had asked him if he could use his phone to call the ranger station because he had been stuck up here for a couple of days. He said the male then said he just needed to get to the ranger station. Wilson said he told the male how to get there. Again, you know, a couple miles down the road. I showed Wilson the same two DMV photographs of Jeff Vance and Anthony Fenimore that he showed to Hale. I showed him Fenimore's picture first. I asked him, is this the male that knocked on your door? Wilson pointed to Fenimore and said, yep, that's him. I showed Wilson the pictures of Vance and asked him if it could have been this guy. And Wilson said, nope, it was not that guy. I asked Wilson if the male said anything about his friend at all. Wilson said, no, he didn't ask anything about his friend or anything about being in, even in trouble. So now we're going to move to Detective Matt Racine again. On Thursday, February 14th, at approximately 3 p.m., he responded to the Umpqua Survival Store located at 2896 Northeast Diamond Lake Boulevard in Roseburg, Oregon. I contacted store employee Sam Hango and inquired about customers who may have been inside that store 
on the afternoon of Saturday, February 2nd at about 4 to 5 p.m. I supplied a limited physical description of Jeff Vance. I also asked if the store security camera footage had been stored for that date. Hango stated the store security camera had just been installed earlier in the day, unfortunately. Prior to that, the previous security camera system had been problematic. No video was available for the date that he requested. Additionally, Hango did not recall anyone matching Vance's description entering the store on that date that he provided. On Thursday, February 14th at approximately 3.30 p.m., I responded to the Glide store located at 117 Brown Street, Glide, Oregon. Please take note of what I just mentioned about uh, nobody mentioning Jeffrey Vance being up in that store because that that was part of the story that Anthony um, said that they had been doing before, you know, that they had gotten lost. And I think he would have remembered Jeffrey, six foot, 240, you're going to remember him. Uh, so he responds to the store. I contacted store employees, Lakedon Woodard and Sandra Wyckoff. I inquired about the store's security cameras and was informed that the store owner, Bill Power, would be able to access them. However, Power was out of town at the time. I asked both Wyckoff and Woodward if they remembered when the lost camper had come into the store on February 4th at 6 p.m., both employees said they were working, yeah. Both employees described the camper, Anthony Fenimore, as appearing very clean for being lost in the woods. Neither employee saw Fenimore being dropped off in a vehicle. I left my contact information for power with the store employees at that time. On Thursday, February 14th at 3.40 p.m., I responded to the Glide Fire Department, to speak with Chief Ted Danewood. Chief Danewood had treated Fenimore the night of the incident. He asked Danewood about Fenimore and if he recalled the events of February 4th at the Glide store. Chief Danewood stated he recalled the patient, and upon arriving at the Glide store, Fenimore was placed into the back of the ambulance and onto a gurney. Fenimore appeared to be acting as if he were shivering, but was an involuntary shaking. So take note of that. He seemed to be acting as if he were shivering. Little things. Remember the in-between? Lots of things like that that you have to take note of. When a preliminary examination was conducted on Fenimore, his pupils were reactive. Otherwise, he, meaning Fenimore, kept his eyes shut, indicating he wasn't impaired, though I don't understand how keeping his eyes shut would indicate he wasn't impaired, though his pupils being reactive, that I understand. Fenimore's hands did work. He took off his boots and pants, but again, if you have hypothermia, your hands, you're not going to be able to do this because he didn't want them to be cut off by the ambulance crew. Further, Fenimore looked cold, but Chief Gainwood did not observe any obvious signs of hypothermia or frostbite. (laughs) Sorry to say it like that, but it's just really extremely important to this case. Chief Danewood described Fenimore as appearing just a little wet from walking in the rain, but not wet from being exposed 
exposed for several days in the elements. Chief Danewood stated it didn't add up at all. During the ambulance ride to Mercy Medical Center, Fenimore did not speak unless he was answering a question. Chief Danewood stated he thought it was extremely strange that he left his friend. I think we all find it extremely strange that he left his friend. Not even that he was lost or anything, just leaving your friend out there, waking up, not seeing him, and just casually continuing on, not even mentioning to a single soul about Jeff. And you tell me that is not suspicious. What's wrong here? What's wrong with these deputies' reports at this time? Heavy snowfall impacted the search area for weeks. As of March 18th, there was still three feet of snow on the ground. Till that snow melts, search efforts were to be suspended and the case is still open at that time. Detectives are still working it. They have come up with information that would indicate this case likely has criminal elements involved. So let's move back to Detective Wingfield. Wingfield states on Wednesday, March 20th, 2019 at around 1 p.m., I contacted Oregon State Police Detective Sergeant Stephen Hinkle by telephone. I requested an OSP detective to meet with Haley Vance, the estranged wife, to get a DNA standard from Jeff Vance's beard trimmer. On Wednesday, March 20th at 2019, at about 4.45 p.m., I contacted the Salina, Kansas Police Department Detectives Division. On Thursday, March 21st at 7.45 a.m., I received a call from Gregory Jones with the Salina Police Department. Detective Jones was going to send an evidence tech to Angela Carroll's house, that's Jeff's mom, and collect her DNA. I provided Jones the sheriff's office address to mail the DNA standards. On Wednesday, April 3rd at about 1 p.m., Detective Racine and I went to the USDA Forest Service Ranger Station located in Glide, Oregon. Detective Racine and I contacted Jennifer Taylor again. I asked Jennifer Taylor the value of the parking permit envelopes, and Jennifer said five cents. I asked Jennifer what the procedure would be if someone was found with several parking permit envelopes, and she said it wouldn't be a big deal if the person is going to use them while visiting campgrounds. The issue would be if the person didn't use them for what they were intended for. I explained to Jennifer they were probably four or five envelopes found during the search of the area. I then told Jennifer it would probably be 20 or 25 cents worth of parking permit envelopes. I asked Jennifer if that's something they would want to prosecute for. Jennifer obviously said probably not. On Thursday, April 4th, 2019 at 7.40 a.m., I received a call from Diamond Lake District Ranger Jimmy Tyree. I explained to District Ranger Tyree about the lock being possibly cut on the gate. I also told District Ranger Tyree about the USDA Forest Service parking permit envelopes. Tyree said the parking permit envelopes are not an issue. Tyree also said he would like the suspect cited for driving down the closed NF-252 road. 
I received Angela Lobb Carroll's DNA standard from Selena's police department. This is on April 9th. 2019. I placed the DNA standard into the detective uh, temporary evidence locker. And on Wednesday, April 10th at about 1123 AM, I was contacted by USDA Forest Service law enforcement officer, Stephen Betts. Officer Betts said he had received a message to call me. I asked Officer Betts what the fine is for driving on a closed forest service road was and Officer Betts said $200 plus a $30 court fee. I asked him about the lock, and Officer Betts said since the lock was worth less than $100, the fine would be $130. I asked Betts if the citations would have to be cited into the federal court. Officer Betts said yes. Now, Sunday, April 14th at about 12:18 p.m. Wingfield was contacted by Deputy Brian Melvin by phone. Deputy Melvin advised me Douglas County Search and Rescue had located the remains of Jeffrey Vance. On Sunday, April 14, 2019, at about 2:30 p.m., Detective Chris Taylor and I responded to the incident command post located at the Tokiti School Road and the park. Deputy Brian Melvin advised me, SAR had located the following items, the burned $20 bill, a black rain jacket, the flashlight, a knife, and keys. SAR personnel escorted Detective Taylor and I to where the remains were located. The area where the search was conducted was heavily wooded. The area nearest the body was covered with ferns and other small underbrush. I was the acting medical examiner at the time and conducted a body exam. And again, I gotta, I gotta just ask a question here. How is he the acting medical examiner? this detective. I'm just asking, I, I, you know, I'm going to need to find out about that. I don't, I don't understand why the actual medical examiner would not be there. I observed Jeff was laying supine in about three to four inches of flowing water. Jeff was clad in a tank top, t-shirt, a a camouflage, long sleeve button up shirt, black boots, a pair of camouflage pants, and an orange glove on his right hand. Jeff had an empty buck knife sheath on his belt, a set of keys clipped to his belt, and an empty Mac tool sheath on that belt. Take note of that. There is no possible way that knife sheath would have been empty on his belt. He made that knife himself, and he carried it everywhere. Also, the Mac tool being empty on his belt. It just, I'm sorry, I call bull. I collected a can of Copenhagen mint long cut tobacco. Detective Taylor and I photographed the body. With the help of SAR personnel, Jeff's body was loaded into a body bag. Hmm. Jeff's 
body was strapped to a backboard and pulled approximately 500 feet up the mountainside. The body was then wheeled down the road on the backboard. It was then loaded up on an ATV. Please take note of that. He was pulled 500 feet, picture that, down on the bottom of a ravine. How he would end up there. And again, once if you're sleuths and you're looking at maps, you're looking at this area, looking at a topography map and to see what's going on. Remember, there was no major snow going on if he was even alive at the time and with Anthony, if. But let's just go with it. He's alive. He's with Anthony. They're walking. Again, not far at all. About a half inch of snow falls that next night, and Jeff's nowhere to be seen. He just falls down this ravine. No, I I don't think so. Bullshit. Anyways. Look, I'm just asking you guys, and I, I'm just I'm just being objective. I really am. Um, if you look at that area, and if you're hiking, uh, and he does have experience, he knows what he's doing. Um, you're not just gonna fall down a 500 foot ravine and being laid out perfectly flat, supine, with your hands up above his head, but picture him flat. And I want you to take note of that because of the next episode and what you're going to hear and what I possibly think occurred. It's just one possible theory because of something that I hear by those girls that gave Anthony a ride to the store is when you're really going to be amazed if you're not already wondering and scratching your head about all these different uh, things that are going on here. So the Douglas County Morgue, MDLI, Craig Kinney, and I performed another body exam. This is Craig Kinney, uh, and he's with Detective Taylor. They rode on the ATV back to where the vehicle was parked, and this was at 7 p.m. Jeff's body was loaded into the medical examiner's truck, transported to the Douglas County morgue. Okay, so that's where they performed the body exam. I contacted SAR coordinator Jerry Applegarth, and SAR coordinator Jerry Applegarth provided me with a map with the coordinates of where some of the items were found. Jerry Applegarth advised me the Coleman headlamp located on the map belonged to one of the SAR personnel that was lost and recovered during the search. So obviously not Jeff's. Jerry Applegarth provided me with two maps of where the items were found. I later had the maps added to the media section of this report. So now all of the items were a black extra, extra large ARC Tyrex raincoat that partially burned $20 bill a black flashlight, pack of black and mild cigars, buck fixed blade knife, key ring with six small keys, black stocking cap, orange glove, Samsung cell phone. Take note, one 
glove, what's not also stated here, well, actually, we're going to leave some stuff out. I think that's best. The buck fixed blade knife, that's not the knife for his holster. MDLI Kinney contacted on-call Oregon State Medical Officer Deputy Medical Examiner Dr. Cliff Nelson to arrange that autopsy. He was discovered one of the Pacific Core Connex box that had been broken into. The Pacific Core video surveillance showed that truck driving in the area of Clearwater Number 1, Four Bay, early Sunday morning with those two subjects exiting the truck with the flashlights. The video shows the subjects walking around and Pacific Corps employees discovered two locks had been cut on the Connex box. The subjects did not take anything. Remember, Deputy Sid Greer retrieved a copy of the video with the statement that provides the video shows a vehicle pulling up to Clearwater Power Plant Number 1 on Clearwater River Road at about 4.08 a.m. on the timestamp from that video. It was dark at this time. The video shows the headlights from the video and the two people shining flashlights. You cannot see what type of vehicle or the two subjects, just the lights. The timestamp on the video was six minutes slow, would make that timestamp actually 4.14 a.m. So just make note of that. A lot of that's gonna gonna come up later. So we're back to receiving information from Anthony Fenimore's sister Samantha uh, regarding Anthony's Google account. And Anthony's Google account showed a picture of him wearing a mask and being in the area of Clearwater Number One Four Bay. The date and time the Google account showed that picture was taken on Sunday, February third. 2019 at 5.08 a.m. and 5.16 a.m. Let me say that again. The date and time on the Google account showed that picture was taken on Sunday, February 3rd, 5.08 a.m. and 5.16 a.m. Now, this is supposed to be when he's out lost in the woods. But these were pictures of him wearing a mask and being in the area of Clearwater, number one, Four Bay. What's going on here? On Thursday, April 18th, 2019, at about 4 p.m., I contacted Pacific Power Hydro Production Manager, Ken Witcher. Asked Ken Witcher if he wanted to pursue charges regarding the subjects breaking into the Connex box, and he said due to nothing being taken, he declined to pursue charges. MDLI Craig Kinney and I transported Jeff's remains to the state medical's office for that autopsy. Craig Kinney advised me there was nothing suspicious found during the autopsy he performed. I downloaded the contents of Jeff's cell phone to a thumb drive using a Celebrate machine and reviewed the contents of Jeff's phone. The last text message Jeff sent out was at 529.25 on 2-2-2019, which converted to Pacific Standard Time would be February 1st 
at 10.29 p.m., Jeffrey Vance had been removed from LEDS and NCIC. I requested this case to be closed non-criminal. Now, intrepid listeners, has anyone taken note of that timestamp? Anthony was shown in a picture of him wearing a mask and being in the area of Clearwater Number 1, Four Bay. The date and time, the Google account showed that picture was taken on Sunday, February 3rd at 5.08 a.m. and 5.16 a.m. Just one thing to note, but that is very important. So this is where we will leave the official version of Jeffrey Vance's disappearance, seemingly out in the middle of nowhere and seemingly out of Anthony's mind and consciousness, just a faded memory from that moment and seemingly no longer his best friend, but best friends don't forget their partner is still lost up in the woods, hypothermia or no hypothermia from one single night in the woods. This man was not naked and afraid. Jeffrey was just sucked up into the mossy soil of the Umpqua National Forest like some kind of woodland creature, never before to be seen again. But yet he was seen again two months later at the bottom of a 500-foot drop into a ravine laid out like a man who just stretched out for a big nap and massage with both arms outstretched above his head but laying supine meaning laying flat out on his back. This reminds me of something that's going to come up on the next episode. This darn jacket. The one you will learn about where you will hear from the two best witnesses to this case, two intelligent, thoughtful, and very afraid young ladies who found Anthony not once, but twice. Once he even said hello, no concern in the world. Then like some kind of woodland fairy, he emerges from the forest surrounding the hot springs parking lot two and a half hours later after being seen the first time. He was just hanging out, having himself a grand old time as the clock ticks, 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 just wasting time. Precious time, stalling for time. Reminds me of an old Ren and Stimpy episode called Space Madness. <laughs> Any of you late 30s or over 40 would remember Ren and Stimpy and Space Madness because that's what he had. This Anthony Fenimore, he had Space Madness. Who knows what we will find out in the next episode of this now Greek tragedy Maybe Jeff attacked Anthony. Yeah, that's it. Or maybe that bear got him because he just had to add that in there. Yep. Jeff was so afraid of bears. Anyhow, we will find out and you're going to want to hear this and take plenty of notes again, please. This is page 100 in that novel, which if you do much reading, know is always the turning point. When all the real action begins, the characters all fall into position and the plot starts to take shape. Suspects take their places. 
theories of what really happened to Jeffrey Vance start to take shape. For anyone with a keen ear and get out your maps of the area, take note of the times and places and just what does it all mean? Plus, what does it mean to have hypothermia? Or to be coming down from certain drugs and how do you act? What are your symptoms? What are your withdrawal symptoms? I don't know. I'm just your host. Look that up. Going to leave that part to you and the family who I know are literally ready to pounce upon this narrative and provide you all with the rest of the story, the middle ground, the in-between spaces, places, and words. So again, please give us a five-star rating if you're on an Apple device so that the algorithms can find us. Also on Android, it's important and literally vital to our survival. The irony of a missing persons podcast to become missing due to too few starred ratings would be its own tragedy. Considering what we do, how important this is, how big we will become and already are based on just that alone. Our devotion to you all and to the next person to go missing. We already have people on the app that are missing that we're going to get in touch with more because now we're ready and we're partnered up with the phone app, which site has been down. They're adding again a bunch of incredibly great things, more things that we're going to be adding such as cold case work in between, you know, working with uh, families with missing loved ones and some other features that we know you're going to love. So it's definitely already the number one app for missing persons. And it's just going to get better and better and better. And then we, as a podcast, as you can see, we work a little bit different than another podcast. So let's say like a true crime podcast. This is just more about facts and details and specifically with the family who again, we'll be speaking with, again, you're going to hear quite a bit from them after this next episode where we hear from the young ladies who provide evidence and talk to me for quite a while. So thank you all for listening and please feel free to take part in helping show how much impossibilities arise here and the clear mishandling of evidence to the point, I'm afraid to say it, but it's criminal. You cannot have the main suspects or even anyone at all help you gather the physical evidence. When in the real world does this happen? See what I mean by bizarre? And did they not think anyone would notice any of this? So when you hear that next episode, even more, like I said, is going to come into view, you will really begin to start to have a case that takes shape, but nowhere near the so-called official version here that I know has been very confusing. And again, I apologize, but it's just, it's the way they wrote it. It's the way they have it. And none of it makes sense. So love you all. And uh, please keep listening. Please 
get on the next episode. If you didn't take notes, listen to this again. Take notes. Look at the area. See what's going on. And I think you're going to claim bullshit yourself. It's really the only answer to what's been, uh, you know, part of this official uh, report taking. And the goal, obviously, is to get this case reopened. And it's going to get reopened after hearing this, plus what you're going to hear from the family and all the additional evidence that they've been able to collect. So fear not. But we still need your help. We need additional evidence. We need tips. We need leads. Anybody that's listening in that area that has any information that saw Jeffrey and Anthony that day or the days preceding going out that road and just happening to have their gas tank punctured and walking away from shelter for no reason at all and losing your best friend and then walking down the mountain without a care in the world. So I'm going to leave you there. Thanks, folks. And look for episode three coming out next.